It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Bracha coming at you. We're going to discuss last week's UFC Fight Night, Rosenstrike versus Gone. And we're going to get into UFC 259 coming up this weekend. A pretty big card headlined by Blackwicks and Adesanya. We have two other title fights, Amanda Nunes versus Megan Anderson. And of course, Peter Yan versus Aljamain Sterling. I'm probably looking forward to Peter Yan versus Sterling the most, Nick. How about you? It's called Blahovich. Blahovich, you're right. I always mispronounce it. Jeez. Jeez, Stan. I can't wait for you to Come pronounce on, a man. Russian person's name on this podcast. I can't wait. Come on, I'll, I'm up. gonna crush it. <laughs> Alexander Rakic, see, look at me. Oh, come on, that's an easy one. He's not Russian, by the way. Uh, oh, what is he Ukrainian? Uh, no, it's it's something Neither? something a little bit off that. Yeah, like Czech or something. We we will get into. I think it. you're right. I think you might be sure. fine. Then I'll, if you really need me to, you don't we have can to talk do about Mugavet and Kalayev. <laughs> oh, there we you can go. Talk about Nikita Krylov. Yeah, um, it's Krylov. We'll, but close you know, enough. we'll get into it a little bit later. But I think what's most important is. Four and one, dude, and just beating you up left and right, calling underdogs. I called three underdogs on the last card. I won, I think, all the disagreements. What's going on with you? I'm just lighting you up. You did not win all the disagreements, but you did win a few from this last card, which was impressive, Nikolai. I give you props. What disagreement did I, which disagreement did I lose last you, week? You lost Jacoby Grishin. You, uh, let's see, we agreed on. I did lose Jacoby Grishin. That was the only one. So the one that you got was Jimmy Rivera and... And Tiago Moises. Tiago Moises, that's I got right. Mu- that's right. Munoz, Mo- uh, Munoz Moises. Also, uh, Myra Buena Silva, like, I mean, come on. She won that fight. But, yeah, I, I don't disagree um, with you. She she should have won the fight. She did blatantly hold on to the fence. And here's the thing. There, there is, like, a slight argument to be made that maybe if De La Rosa was in top position for a good portion of that first round, maybe she wouldn't have been as beat up. But in all, like, I agree with you. She's an overall better fighter, it looked like to me, based on what we saw on fight night. So that is a pretty decent call I also on you, picked Dave. I picked Davis over Mazo. Nah, you, you didn't. I did. Well, you, you changed the pick, though, buddy. No, I didn't. Did you go back and listen to it? Uh, I, I, do, I do have the audio. I, I will play it for you at some point. Maybe I'll include it as part of this episode. But, uh, but you, you, you did change your pick back on that one. I won the card, though, right? So I'm... I'm four and one in draft picks. I don't know what I am in you, straight up. You didn't drafts. get. You didn't go four and one. You went three and a half to half. You you don't get a win for a draw, right? You get a half a point. No, I don't mean the points. I mean, I mean, I'm four and one in cards this year against you. Oh, I see. I see. Okay, for sure. Um, so I've so far. Uh, so here's the thing. I had 14 points leading into this event. Event, in other words, I had 14 correct draft. You was 14, picks. And, I, and I had 13. You, you were had up one 13, going into this event. Exactly. I picked up four, and you picked up three and a half which puts us at my 18 to your 16 and a half. So we're a point and a half apart now with me. It's slightly in the lead. So a couple of good picks on this one, Nick, and you're going to take over. Well, yeah, but I'm also in, in, in terms of wins per card. Yes. I'm yes. four. You, you, I'm, I'm a four. Using last year's scoring, I'm four and one. Using last year's scoring, you are four and one. Using this year's scoring, I am up eighteen. I'm down. I'm down and two and a half points. Uh, just one, one and, and a half, half points. Point. Yeah, yeah. It's actually yeah. super, super close. So it's tight. It's it's extremely tight and competitive. And I, uh, I mean, what's funny is we predicted that with so many disagreements 
that we would uh, that one of us would pull ahead a lot, but it was but no, it, it was still pretty way. tight. It really was, and and I and I have to give you credit for another thing that we don't necessarily factor into our scoring, but this is I believe the second card in a row where you had overall better picks than me. You went six two and one on this card, and I went five three and one. So these last two weeks at least you've been you've been doing really well and picking those underdogs nick i'm impressed by it and i have and, to give you props and let's talk about one more thing before we're done with about how great i am <laughs> um what i what was like one of my first picks most confident picks angela hill against ashley yoder got taken off that is true but then uh one of my picks ramazan kuramagomedov got taken off and uh yeah the, that was a tough that was a tough one to call though i really have no idea what was going to happen in that fight yeah, but but I don't disagree with you that Angela Hill was was you know a, a pretty safe bet. heavy favorite. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I agree that did hurt you. But I mean that's worked both ways. I think last season I lost oh, a yeah. bunch of my uh, top couple of picks uh, throughout the early COVID days, uh, so that kind of swings both ways. But I agree with you. Like that would have definitely helped you if that fight stayed on the card. Um, I do wonder how that Menafield Knight fight would have happened uh, would have gone, and I'm curious about Kuramagomedov. By the way, say his name, Nick. Let let's see see let's hear you say that Russian name. Which one? Ramazan. Oh, again with that guy? Okay, <laughs> you can't on. do it. That's all right. No worries. Let me, no, I can do Ramazan Kuramagomedov. We, we lost 30% of our listenership. With Ramazan Kuramagomedov. <laughs> Kuramagomedov. Kuramagomedov. All right. It's, not, it's a good name, not a bullshit name. Ramazan <laughs> Kuramagomedov. Well, man, I screwed it up then. I yeah. couldn't do it in the accent. No, no but uh, it, was, it, it was still pretty funny. So a pretty, pretty damn, like, Honestly, it's a underwhelming card, right? We expected more. We expected not only more fights, but I think we expected more finishes and more action. And I think it was eight out of nine fights ended up going the distance. Some of them, I would say, more entertaining than others. I think um, the main event was probably a big stinker. And had that been an exciting matchup between Cyril Gaon and Jarzino Rosenstrike, I think a lot of people would have had a better outlook on the card overall. What were your thoughts on that main event, buddy? Oh, God. I actually fell asleep in the fourth round. I think I texted you that yeah. while it was going on towards the end of the fourth round. And that's the last thing I wanted. Um, You know, I do think that Gan is, a, you know, at times he was reminding me of, of another Frenchman, Francois Carmont, uh, who used to train at TriStar. Mm-hmm. Um, and the sort of cautious, good footwork, cautious defense, generally defensive kickboxer approach. I, th- I think he's a really exciting fighter. Like, I can't. I mean, I think he can be a really exciting fighter, and he's been exciting and brutal um, and had brutal finishes in other fights. It's tricky, man. You're going against Trezinio Rosenstrike, who does seem to be more limited than we had than we had initially thought. He's got incredible power. He looked very small compared to Gon, which was a surprise, I think, to everyone watching. Yeah. And, um, but... They just, it was one of those, st- you know, staring, waiting for the counter shot fights for Rosenstrike and gone just doing very, very careful point kickboxing. Um, and, you know, he eked out five rounds. Like Dana White wasn't very impressed. But the fact of the matter is, you cannot really deny Gon a, I mean, I guess you could. Like he's got, I would think he's got to get um, Volkov. Or the Black Beast, one of the, and those guys are going to force the fight, and that's going to be really interesting. Or if you want, if they want to be a dick to him, they could match him up with um, Dawkins or Aspinall and try to undercut um, his prospectness with their prospectness if they don't feel like he deserves one of those elite guys. Um, honestly, any of those four fights 
uh, would be interesting. And I'd be excited to see, but I, I think, um, I mean, the black beast would be really entertaining, but I think Volkov is the, is the fight you got to make. It's like put two, you know, two terrific, um, terrific and prolific kickboxers in there and let's see what happens. Yeah, I I would I think I would prefer the Black Beast fight just because I don't I mean maybe I'm still underestimating him, but I don't necessarily see him as realistically winning the title anytime soon. And I can see Volkov pulling it off, and I could see Gon pulling it off. So if I had to eliminate one of those three from contention, I would probably choose the Black Beast from that uh, scenario. And then I think Gon could very well. I, I think honestly Derek Lewis versus either one of these guys works for me. And then the other one matching up with. I don't know somebody else that that doesn't imply as much risk unless it's a number one contender I, matchup. I kind of feel like the Black Beast has already earned a second title shot by destroying Blade, so I don't know. Yeah, but the way he was—I um, don't disagree with you—but the way he was talking about it is that he's probably not going to wait like a year to get it. The man wants to make some money. He wants to move right. on with his life. Um, maybe the UFC will give him a little bit of a gimme if they really feel like he can bring the numbers in for a pay-per-view because you know he's a very fairly popular guy, especially compared to Volkov and Gon. But I would love to see either Gon or Volkov work their way up to the title. I would prefer, if anything, to see Gon get a couple of more wins, maybe right around that Rosenstrike level. It doesn't necessarily have to be a number one contender bout. I just feel like him being 8-0, he could use a little bit more seasoning before he gets thrown into the real deep fire of the heavyweight division. And as far as this matchup, when it comes to my perspective, I think that Look, we, we saw what can happen, right, the previous weekend in a heavyweight bout when you're facing a seriously hard heavyweight puncher. We saw what could happen if you're being kind of reckless, if you're going out there and actually pushing the pace and really bringing it to him. You can get countered and knock the heck out. And Cyril Gaon knew that that was a possibility against Rosenstrike. Cyril Gaon did his job, in my opinion, right? Like, I understand he wasn't really trying to just take his head off, but he was throwing his strikes. He was landing them consistently. He landed 102 strikes, which is about 20 per round. It's not best case. I hear that. He landed two takedowns to Rosenstrike's 42 strikes over a period of five rounds. That's less than 10 strikes per round, right? So... Um, I'm sorry, to, to uh, yeah, it was Rosenstrike with the low strikeout. But so really, I think the onus of this is on Rosenstrike. We've seen Rosenstrike in these kind of boring fights before. Uh, if you look back at his JDS matchup, the first round, he barely threw a thing. And when he did, he missed for the most part, right? And JDS took that first round clearly um, against Alistair Overeem. It was four rounds of a snooze fest until he suddenly decided to explode in the last few seconds and got that win. So we've seen this from Rosenstrike before. We haven't seen it from Gon. And for that reason, I'm not blaming Gon much for this. This is this is more of a Rosenstrike issue. He's extremely low out, but he relies on, the, on his counter opportunities. And Gon refused to give him a good counter opportunity. I think Gon probably did the smart thing. Now, if Gon was going into this fight having already competed a couple times and already been boring a couple times, then I'm there with you. Gon, you know, some of that responsibility is on him but in this case this is his first non very exciting fight in the UFC and really what makes for an exciting fight I've said this before on the podcast is that guys are guys and, and girls are willing to make mistakes right mistakes is what makes things exciting whether it be that I throw a loopy right hand and land it or that you uh, make a mistake and throw a loopy right hand for example which leaves the opportunity for me to counter you which is exciting, right? None of the, no, neither of these guys were willing to make the mistakes to allow the other guy to have that that impressive moment. And so it resulted in the fight that it was. I don't blame Gon by a whole lot, but I do hope that he takes more risks against guys like Derek Lewis and and uh, 
if he ends up fighting, obviously, uh, Francis Ngannou in the future. Yeah, but still, exci- you know, exciting, athletic, very big prospect. Yeah. Um, let's zip through the rest of the card because there's so much to talk about with the upcoming pay-per-view. Yeah, there is. Um, we had uh, a fight between Magomed Ankalev. There it is. Magomed Ankalev <laughs> against Nikita Krylov. Um, you know, I think everyone thought that following the uh, the Ian Kutalaba drama that Magomed would um, would kind of like blaze through Krylov. So this fight was a bit anticlimactic as Krylov definitely won the first round, uh, in my opinion. But you know he just and he's a, he's a well-rounded good fighter uh, on his own. But he wasn't easy. You know he wasn't he wasn't a pushover. It was probably. I think everyone expected it to be more of a showcase fight. Why do you think uh, Ankylev had had as much difficulty with Krylov as he did? I think it's because, like, Krylov recently has become more of a kind of top-position grappler. He goes for takedowns and kind of takes a safe route against, like, these exciting strikers. He couldn't really pull that off against Ankylev, who has the better wrestling. But before Krylov ever got into this grappling mode that gave him recent success, he was a really exciting, dynamic striker, right? That was the main focus of his fighting style. And I think that combined with him coming over to American Top Team, one of the best gyms on the planet for mixed martial arts, I think that did a lot for him. He went into that fight with a good game plan. He clearly won that first round, in my opinion. And I think if he had just tempered himself a little bit more in that first round and maybe landed uh, instead of, let me see, I'm going to quickly look at the punch stats for the this fight in particular, he landed 40. He actually landed more strikes than Uncle Ive did throughout the fight, but he threw 49 strikes in that first round, and landed 21 of them, which is pretty good. Pretty similar pace in the second round. It just seems like Uncle Ive really picked it up. I, I think a lot of it is because Krilov is really skilled, right? His big issue with all of his losses in the UFC, or most of them, is that he wasn't tempering himself, is that he was just trying to expend all of his energy to finish early, earlier in his career. He has the skill if he just has the right team behind him. And he showed it in that first round. That second round was close. He landed just three strikes less than did Ankalaev. In that third round, I thought that Ankalaev largely controlled. I think Ankalaev's uh, takedowns were also kind of a factor here, right? He was able to get top position, held top position for two minutes in that second round. That's what won him that round. Held top position for over three minutes in the third round. And that's what did it. I think that uh, better takedown defense by Krilov would have made a big difference here. Yeah, I think that I think that all makes sense. Um, the next fight was the draw, the Myra Buena Silva against Montana De La Rosa. Now I have continuously this year uh, picked against Montana De La Rosa, whereas you've kind of supported her, mostly yes. because I don't. Is she is she physically gifted? Yes. Is she a good grappler? Yeah. Does she have length? Yes. But at the same time, she does not seem like she can maintain her composure and situational awareness and can drive a fight for 15 minutes. There are long lapses where she seems lost and unable to regain control and it is unable to impose her will. And I I don't know specifically or technically what that problem is. I just, I've recognized it in her fights and it's why I, I picked a fighter um, who I think was clearly more, uh, you know, dri- uh, driven, composed, finish oriented um, and just confident. Uh, confident in there uh, to get the win, and I thought that I thought that you know Silva deserved it. There was the the fence grab for sure, um, but she ba- you know she banged her up uh, by, by the did, end yeah. of the fight. What it what is what do you think? And you've you've consistently defended Montana De La Rosa, but we've seen her lose a bunch of fights. Yeah, and 
over the last 18 months or so. I think she's got two or three losses and where she, you know, she was considered a prospect, certainly a better fighter than her husband um, comparatively in, in the context of their divisions. But what's, what's the problem with her? How has she gone from uh, hot prospect to kind of losing her way over the last two years? So in the women's fights, in most women's fights, right, you tend to see if one person has the wrestling advantage, they're probably going to win, unless you're Sarah McMahon who can't keep her stuff together and always gets submitted in that second round, right? But Montana Del Rosa has shown that she's a really good top position grappler and that she's got really good wrestling. And Bueno Silva, as dangerous as she is on the feet, as dangerous as she is on the ground, I did not think that she could avoid those takedowns. Now, one thing that I didn't factor in, and that was a mistake on my part, is that De La Rosa is not durable. And I'm not sure that she has the kind of heart and will to fight through really tough moments and still win. She can fight through tough moments and like stay in there and not get finished, but she doesn't have the will to win at some point. She's just trying to survive. Is it is it heart and will or is it focus and ability to figure out a plan? To me, she seems lost, not broken. But I don't know if I don't. Is there a distinction in that as a fighter? Well, Can you speak to, to that a little bit? To, to me, there is, right? So there's the kind of fighter like Conor McGregor who, as soon as a fight starts going against him very clearly, as soon as he's in a really bad position that he's very uncomfortable in, he literally just gives his opponent a submission or just like drop flops onto his back. Yeah, and acts that's like getting he's out. that's getting broken. Not right, lost. right, right. So Montana Denarosa, right? She. She doesn't give up that way, right? She doesn't want to give up the win, but she turns her head, to me it seems like, from from the will to win to just the will to survive. Her goal changes as soon as she takes some hard, hard shots. And to be honest with you, her husband, kind of similar. He's less athletic compared to his competition than she is, right? And he doesn't have the wrestling edge like she does over most girls. But, but it's the same thing where at some point their mindset just changes from... I want to win this fight too. I just want to make it to the bell. And that's what it seems like to me. It's not that she's just like losing all of her heart to the point of wanting to get out of there. It's that like almost without realizing it, she decides I need to survive. I just need to get through this moment. And she forgets that like she needs to initiate legitimate offense in order to get the win. And I also think that like when I say, when I question her durability, I mean that when she takes a few hard body shots, when she takes a few clean shots to the head, she, she like, she doesn't have the same like effort that she puts into her offense. She's trying half-heartedly. She doesn't believe, it seems like, in herself that she can pull this off anymore. So I think it's largely a mental thing with her. And I think also the durability factor. Some people just don't take shots well. And they don't necessarily just drop and get knocked out. But they're just like exhausted all of a sudden because of the panic that comes with getting hit like that. And that's what I'm kind of getting from Montana Del Rosa. The reason I picked her in this matchup is, like I said, because I thought that she would have the wrestling advantage. She showed that she did until she lost her will to win the fight. And then it didn't matter that she could get top position because she wasn't trying hard enough. Interesting. Um, to go through the rest of the card, I mean, we really have to talk, and this will probably be the last fight that we go deep on. Pedro Munoz, Jimmy Rivera. Great battle. Yes. Um, you know, probably the most high-profile fight uh, that calf kicks played a major factor in, uh, second only to Poye McGregor. Yeah. But oh boy, that was that was the narrative and Munoz uh took out Rivera's legs. Rivera never stopped throwing and trying. He did the best he did the best that he could, but his um he was you know, he was compromised. He was compromised because his wheel his wheel got damaged. 
And uh, and Munoz looked. I mean, Munoz looked terrific. He looked focused. But there's a lot of chatter about. Oh, should these be regulated? Oh, calf kicks are ruining fights. You're seeing a little bit of anti-calf kick uh, sentiment from the casuals. I'm like, well, for everyone, prepare for it and get a get a game plan together. So that like what whatever you have to do, it's mixed martial arts. Mix it up. Like you, there, there needs to be. Uh, tra- you know the camp. The camps need to have a plan for defending against calf kicks. Uh, what what is that? What do you think? I mean, I don't know if there's anything else you want to say about the fight, but also, let's say uh, that Jimmy Rivera's camp had um, had anticipated Munoz was going in all calf kicks. What could they have done? Well, there's a lot of chatter about the fact that there's no way to defend the calf kicks. I I largely disagree with that. Right, so. There is, yeah, of course. I mean, there's got to be a way. It might not be. It might not be checking the same way, but there's a way to defend it, like not be there to get kicked in the calf. Well, well, right. That's what people say is that that's the only way to deal with calf kicks. I, I, I dis, I tend to disagree, and I don't have like a huge lot of experience with calf kicks on a live fight without shin guards on. So there is a difference there. I get it. But here's the thing: you have a calf muscle on the back of your lower leg, right? Um, you kind of have two strands, one on the left, one on the right, and you can kind of feel that there's a split between them if you feel your calf. There's also a calf muscle that's kind of on the outside of the front of your leg. And that's the part, uh, that muscle is what allows your toes your, your, your toes to kind of point up. So anytime you want to lift up your foot to take a step, uh, it, it, like that's, that front part of the calf is what allows that to happen, right? So there's multiple parts of the calf that can get damaged in a fight. The trick is you can't just like lift your leg up because if you lift lift your leg up and you don't turn the leg out far enough, you're still going to get hit on that front part of the calf muscle. Now, what you want to do is you want to turn the leg up further out, a little more tie style, and then it's all bone that your opponent is hitting, right? Then they're not getting any muscle, and then it's shin on shin, and in many cases— That's, That still hurts like a bitch, though. Well, it does, but odds are you're taking it on the top part of your shin, which is more dense and can take more damage, and you should be conditioned on that part of the shin as a fighter. And if you take it at the bottom of your shin, and that's usually what the kicker kicks with, is the is the lower part of the shin, that hurts badly. That's where it that's can get how really you bad. get. And that's how you get Anderson Silva. That's exactly. Chris Weidman's destructor. Exactly, okay. exactly, right? So Chris Weidman blocked that kick with his knee. So if you have your knee bent, that is about as hard as a body part can get period, right? Like if you have your knee bent, it is very difficult to do damage onto that knee. It's extremely hard. You can possibly break a bat on it. I'm not saying it won't hurt a little, but you can possibly break a bat on that, right? But this is different. Here's the thing. A lot of people say that all you got to do is get out of the way of the calf kicks and that's the only way to defend them. I'm genuinely a big proponent of actually turning your foot out further. That might leave you vulnerable to punches, but those calf kicks can really be deadly. Now, another thing that we've seen is guys like Sean O'Malley, who just essentially just like lose will and like decide that they can't stand up anymore and it hurts so badly and they have to drop onto their back then you have guys like michael chandler who took a calf kick in bellator uh, and he lost a fight like that and he took that calf kick to the outside of the front of the shin and that's why he wasn't able to lift his foot to take steps and so he like like unintentionally kept falling is down it, and that's how the fight it, was not stopped. yeah well and then there's there's Cejudo in the first round of his the, the fight where he lost where he won the belt against mighty mouse but is it a question of pain or is it a question of literal paralysis? Uh, on the front part of the uh, front part of the shin, it's more paralysis than anything else. On the back part of the uh, on the back part of the calf, that's more uh, that's more of a pain thing. But it could also limit your movement. Don't get me wrong; it could also make it so that you can't put weight onto your leg. But guys like Jimmy Rivera are showing us that you can have a horribly damaged calf 
Guys like Alexander Rakic uh, against Volkan Ozdemir, his calf was mangled, but he made it all the way to the decision, right? He didn't just give in and drop on it to his back and hope for the best like some guys did. So there is definitely a mental component to it. There's also a component of which part of your calf you're getting hit with, like I said earlier. What's next for Munoz? Do you think Munoz deserves a title shot? I mean, honestly, I don't think that Munoz lost that fight to Frankie Edgar, so he should be on a big win streak here. And what I've noticed between that Frankie Edgar fight and this last bout that he just went into is that he's really worked on fixing the issues in his game. And one of the bigger issues in his game is that he's on the slow side for the division. He's faster now. Uh, He's definitely worked on that. And the other issue is that he gets wild. He likes to brawl at times. And he's been addressing that, right? His his no, number of shots that he's taken throughout his UFC career, he's taken more shots than he's landed, even though he's a really successful UFC fighter, which shows you that his, he's not minding his defense. He's really changed that. He's really addressed that, and I'm impressed by it. I think he has the potential to be a top-flight flyweight. I don't know if he's going to be champion, honestly, just because there are sharper guys out there who are taller than he is. But I do think he should be in a title title eliminator situation at this point in his career, man. That guy is Yeah, so I mean, he legit. did lose to Sterling. Actually, I mean, I think the move for Munoz is let him let him welcome Dillashaw back. I would love to see it. Actually, I thought I heard that Dillashaw was booked with someone. I can't remember who it is at the moment, but I don't I, think I would so, I would but... love to see that. I think that would be fantastic. I, I would be all over that one, man. Um, we've I'll got... check it. I'll check it right now. I don't think um, I don't see any record of Dillashaw booked. Uh, but I think I think Dillashaw will either get the winner of Kenny Cruz or, um, you know, or Munoz. I think it's Dillashaw Sanhagen. I could be wrong, man. I'm not sure if that's official. But I thought Sanhagen was I thought Sanhagen was going to get the winner of of Sterling Yan. Oh yeah, but I can I can certainly in. see that if he's willing to wait. I I heard something about Sanhagen Dillashaw. I, I might be off on that, but I will say this. If not, uh, I would say for Pedro Munoz, ideally, uh, the loser of, let's say if, if this is a big if, if Peter Yan loses to Aljamain Sterling, I would say that's the matchup to make for him. And outside of that, Ralph Font, because he's fought a lot of the top guys. I don't necessarily need to see him against Marlon Marais at this point in Marais' career. Jose Aldo would be interesting. Maybe if Dominic Cruz picks up a win this weekend, Cruz-Pedro Munoz would be fascinating as well. So uh, for me, Pedro Munoz versus Rob Font or Dominic Cruz would be best-case scenario, I think. Maybe we'll see Jimmy Rivera against Frankie Edgar. That'd be an interesting fight. Yes, I'm all about that. They're both Jersey guys, uh, probably have a couple of training partners in common. Although I feel like Tiger Shulman's generally kind of keeps to their own crew. Uh, that would be very interesting to me because those are both technical yeah, guys. They're but- also, I mean, I think of Tiger Shulman as a New York gym, not a Jersey one, right? Uh, they're headquarters in New Jersey, and that's where the oh. team does their training. Oh, I didn't know that. I always thought they were in Union Square, but what do I know? Yeah, actually, just pre-COVID, um, I was uh, I was invited by one of like their main training partners uh, to come to the gym and train with those guys. But it was like, I think it was like mid-February when this happened, so it never worked out. And then COVID hit, and now here we are. But I am very much looking forward to uh, getting that chance if I do in the near future. Um, going through the rest of the card with just a couple minutes, over a couple minutes. Um, Alex Caceres greatly outclassed Kevin Kroom, even though Kroom was coming off that win against Roosevelt Roberts. Not much to say there, except, sure, let's see Caceres after 10 years in the UFC against a top 15 opponent. I think he's earned that. Uh, you know, he's a versatile, fun fighter. Good guy to put on TV. 
I agree. He's um, put four wins together at this point, and outside, like he's five and one in his last six. That one loss being to Cron Gracie, which you know is a little disappointing. He has the skill to win that fight, in my opinion. But I agree. I'd like to see him against someone in that top twenty range because he's been kind of disposing of these uh, entry level UFC fighters. Uh, Nick, didn't you? Did you not pick uh, Kevin Kroom last week? No, I did no, not. You didn't. Cool. Uh, I know a lot of people did, and I was a little bit surprised by that. Uh, he's a little bit of a character, man. The guy is like kind of nuts. I don't know if you saw any footage of him getting interviewed. Um, oh yeah, I did, and also I saw his interview after the Roosevelt Roberts win. I see. Yeah, dude is a super character. But uh, one thing that I will quickly say: Kevin Kroom got that UFC debut win taken away against Roosevelt Roberts because he had, uh, I, I think, marijuana in his system. Uh, the good news is that the UFC actually didn't take away his 50k bonus. They they let him have the bonus even though the win was taken away, and he also got his win bonus. So, I feel like that at least makes makes it feel a little bit less wrong. Yeah, I agree. Um, one of the performances of the night had to go to Thiago Moises, who, you know, ter- just terrific composure, great power in his shots, not intimidated at all by former prospect Alexander Hernandez. Uh, now kind of a middling, uh, a middling lightweight, an athletic yep. and talented guy um, who just, I, I don't know, what do you, how would you describe the difference between these two fighters? Because on the feet, Moises was just um, crisper, I think a little bit more confident and assured in, in his shots. And, and that led to pres- just better precision and timing. What do you, what's, what was the difference in this fight from your, from your perspective? I think Moises has done a phenomenal job of working on his striking in general, but more importantly, his counter-striking. And he just seems to naturally have a lot of power. Like, we haven't seen knockdowns or knockouts by him yet, right? But we've we've seen, like, every time he lands a shot, it is consequential. It, it look, clearly looks consequential now, right? Where that didn't used to be the case. It was kind of a pitter-patter guy when he first entered the UFC. And, yes, I think, and he did it through three rounds, mind you. He was throwing yeah. fucking heat. 14 minutes and 30 seconds into this fight, he was still throwing heat. Absolutely, and that's the thing. That last fight against uh, Green, a lot of folks thought that Green deserved that bout, who was a big favorite over him. Um, I thought it could have easily gone either way, and even though Green landed more, I thought that Moises was, like, everything he landed was with power. Green was pitter-pattering for the most part. He was scoring points. Moises was, was trying to take his head off with everything, even those blocked kicks looked like they were hurting. I am officially impressed by Moises. I did not think much of him until until his last couple of bouts, to be honest with you, and he's genuinely impressed me. I still don't think he's a very high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt. I think he's like a average black belt, but I think he's really put his game together. He's made it so that he doesn't desperately need takedowns to win. He's made it so that if the fight stays standing, I have something to say, even against a good seasoned striker, and I'm very impressed. And and you're right about... Uh, about uh, his opponent in this case, he's he's at this point a journeyman. He's a guy with a lot of potential who mentally just doesn't have it. Once the fight starts not going his way, once he takes a few clean shots, it's kind of similar to De La Rosa a, a little bit where he's no longer fast. He no longer has the pop in his punches. He th- doesn't have the same look on his face. It was the same thing in his uh, two other losses in the UFC, and, and we're seeing it here. He also doesn't do well against pressure fighters, it seems like to me. If a guy is able to establish pressure against him, he's going to be in trouble, and that was the case in this matchup. Uh, I'm very impressed by Moises. I'm looking forward to him getting a top 10 matchup next. Um, and You think he's going to go top 10 next? I mean, he's... I, I... 
I think that might be a little high. I mean, maybe he gets the winner of Dober uh, Makachev, but he already, he already got to, he, Oh, you're right. Dober Makachev. That's, that's a good fight. To I make think it's more likely he fights the rent the winner of Brad Riddell, Gregor Gillespie. And either one of those is really interesting to me because Riddell is such a great striker and Gillespie is such a great wrestler. Um, I'd be happy so with him, him facing that. the winner of either of those bouts. Very happy with either, but I yeah. do think or he deserves if, a mean, step up at this point. If, but it, okay, if you want to give him a step up and you don't mind putting him against a guy coming off of a, a loss but a strong performance, put him in with Diego Fajaya. Um, yeah, I mean that would be like putting him in the in the Shark Tank a little bit, but I'm not against it honestly. He's he's seasoned at this point. He's he's experienced some high level competition. He got thrown right into the fire in his UFC debut. So yeah, I, I wouldn't be against that at all. I think that would be a fascinating matchup. I like it, Nick. That that's why you are the uh, official matchmaker of the MMA. Game oh, there's Sinatra other podcast. options too. You got Leonardo Santos, Dwight Grant coming up, um, and you also Nick, have quit Arnie, while you're ahead. You uh, made Sergeant. the matchup. You you yep. made the matchup, okay. buddy. I'm serious. I think it's phenomenal. I really do. I I think that's a great idea, uh, especially the winner, with, the winner of Riddell Gillespie or the winner or Diego Fea. Diego Fea. I think I think that's the perfect one yeah. because Diego's ranked uh, a little bit above him, even though he's coming off of a kind of a, a competitive loss to what I think might be an elite guy in uh, Dariush, who also has a win over Moises. Uh, I think this would be a great matchup to see which one of those guys can pull through. These are like a pair of Brazilians with Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu backgrounds who've really rounded out their games uh, under the tutelage of really kind of high-level coaching, and I would love to see that matchup. I think that would be fun to watch, and it would establish a contender. And I only say that because these two guys are coming off of uh, losses, right? Ideally, I would love to – well, I'm sorry, Moises is not coming off of a loss, but I think for Moises it's a little bit too early to get deep into that lightweight top eight, top seven. So I think that would be the perfect matchup for him, buddy. And just going over the last three fights quickly, I'm going to zip through these real quick. Uh, Mr. Standryev. Uh, Alexis do. Davis, as I predicted, uh, used her experience in ground control to take Sabina Mazo out of her uh, kickboxing game. Uh, that's a problem Mazo's going to have uh, at, at 135. She's, she's going to be, I think, spending a lot of time um, with grappling training partners in the near future if she wants to uh, you know, push into the top eight or top ten in that division. Uh, Ronnie Lawrence, as you, as you predicted, um, got Vince Cachero out of there with some nasty ground and pound. And then Dustin Jacoby. Wait, just real his... quick. Ronnie Lawrence, phenomenal prospect. I am very excited about this kid. Like uh, I didn't see his kicking game before you combine that level of kicking with that level of wrestling. And he's got conditioning, like nonstop conditioning. And he's got extreme confidence and like really high expectations of himself. I'm very excited about that kid. So who do you? Yeah, he did, he looked great. Who do you want to see him against at 135? I'm not sure. I, I don't think we should be looking at like the top 20 rankings for this kid because you know he's he's just kind of entering the UFC. Even though I think he could compete with those guys, I don't think it's fair to to kind of look at that end of the spectrum. Is this uh, 135 pounds, Nick? Yeah, but then but there's still all kinds of there's Chris Gutierrez. Why wouldn't you want to see that? Yes, fight? that's the one. I'm, I, they're both excellent kickers, except that this guy has phenomenal wrestling. And Gutierrez is another guy that I was thinking of that has like a similar kicking game where he's just relentless with his offensive kicks, but he doesn't have the wrestling that this guy does. And Chris Gutierrez, I think, is probably in that 2025 range of the rankings. Brian Kelleher, I think, makes a lot of sense for this kid. Uh, Andre Ewell, I would be interested in seeing. I think that level of fighter for him next, he should get a little bit of a slow come up against guys that can really test him and give him some rounds in there because I, again, I was very, very impressed with his UFC debut performance. 
this uh, shot that I didn't realize that later this month, Sean O'Malley, Tom, Thomas Almeida is booked, but we can talk about that later. That just one just caught me off guard. Um, and Dustin yeah. Jacoby, Max and Grishin. Close fight. Grishin's, you know, Grishin's no slouch. Uh, very, very close. Um, Dustin Jacoby, one of the few guys to come back to the UFC and have success uh, and pick up a win. You know, not, it was good. It was, you know, it was a good, it was a good uh, scrap at 205 between guys further, further down in the rankings. I think Grishin, uh, who's one and two now in the UFC, but I think one of those losses at, at heavyweight yep. uh, to Marcin Tiburin will probably stick around um, at yeah. least for two, you know, a fight or two. And we'll see, you know, we'll see what's next for Justin Jacoby. But 205 is a wide open division um, when, when you look at those rankings outside of like the top eight. Yeah, I was actually impressed with Grishin. He, like at least at moments, was trying to put the pedal to the metal, which his biggest issue, I think, is his output. And actually his lack of output is what ended up costing him in this fight. And Jacoby just was able to put it on a little bit more, was able to throw out a little bit more out there, even though Grishin was doing a good job of landing that right hand as a counter against a really good striker. Like what this showed me is that Grishin's striking level is pretty up there. And, you know, he didn't get to show it really to the same extent in his first two UFC bouts, even though he dominated his second bout. It was against a mediocre opponent. This time we really saw him uh, kind of really try to put the pedal to the metal. I was impressed by him. But more importantly, I think Jacoby's shown that he does have the conditioning. He has the will to get through some tough moments. So I was impressed with both guys, and I'm glad that Jacoby walked away with a win. I think uh, for both guys it would be great to get a little bit of a a slow roll for that division because – both guys could be in that, I think, top 10, top 15 range in the next two years, but I don't think they should be rushed there. I agreed. 100% agreed. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll uh, we'll come back with our picks. Awesome. Let's do it, buddy. And we are back on the podcast to break down UFC 259. Nick, this is a fantastic card. It's topped off with three title fights, the kind of title fights that only dreams are made of. Well, at least two of them, in my opinion. Jan Blackwicks versus Israel Adesanya. Phenomenal matchup. It's interesting because Israel said in an interview that he's going to weigh 195 pounds, Nikolai, for this one. Whereas Yan probably will weigh like 225, 230 uh, on fight night. And that should be fascinating given Yan's already kind of inherent power advantage, his strength advantage, the fact that he wants to grapple. And then Nunez, Megan Anderson, I'm not super excited about it. I expect Nunez is going to do well because Megan Anderson really mostly just has a really, really good right hand. I wonder if Amanda Nunez will be ballsy enough to stand with her. I tend to think not, given what's been going on lately. And then the one that I'm most excited about, Peter Yan versus Al Jermaine. Motherfucking Sterling, Nick. Could go either way. Super psyched. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I mean, and then, I mean, the whole main card is just epic. And we've even got Dominic Cruz, Casey Kenny leading the prelims, which, you know, that's a, in my opinion, that's a that's a fight night five rounder main event that I'd I'd be excited to see. Um, I agree. I would done. easily say that uh, Cruz Kenny is a five rounder main event. Rock Hicks Santos could be Makachev. Dober could be any of these fights. Askarov, any of these top Askarov six fights. Benavidez could be. Yeah, yeah. Askarov is not a name yet, but he's a he's a top guy. I agree. Oh, he's a, he's number three in the world. Holy crap! So. He's that high, huh? Right now, that's insane. Yeah, so uh, I I agree with you. Any any of those seven bouts could easily headline a card for a really shitty card. You could probably pull out 
uh, you know, maybe Sean Brady versus Jake Matthews as a main event of things. No, went terribly yeah, yeah, yeah. wrong. Pass. Otherwise, fight pass, baby. Yeah. Fight pass. No, I, I do. I do hear that. The way it oh, works yeah. is we each take turns picking fighters on the card. Whoever and ends Dan up loses. having, God damn it, Nick. Whoever ends up having picked the highest number of winning fighters at Nick. the end of this year, at the end of this season, essentially ends up winning. Nick. I am currently just a point and a half ahead over Nick, who's been doing well and 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 kicking butt lately. Nikolai, you've got the first pick. Go for it, buddy. And I'm also in overall cards, winning cards. I'm four and one. Let's not forget that. You're, you're not four and one. Uh, I'm going to make one correction. The only reason you got that first card is because. We looked at it as part of our old rules, but like there's no tiebreakers anymore, right? So like we tied on that first card. So you were actually uh, one two to my one with one draw. If you actually want to talk about technicalities, but I am up ahead a point and a half, which is really what counts. I'm two to one. Well, it's it's not what you made up tomorrow. (laughs) All right, so uh, I'm I'm going to go with Amanda Nunes over Megan Anderson. I just even if she lands a right hand, I don't think she's going to hit Nunes as hard as as other people like Cyborg have hit, have hit, have uh, hit Amanda Nunes, um, who's been in there with, with the best of them. I think, I think she wins this fight on the feet. I think that she, and she certainly win, wins this fight grappling. And I think here's what I'd like to see. Not playing around. Lioness gets in there and um, gets a choke and just get, just gets her out of there. I think that, I think that Amanda Nunes is a, is a superior jiu-jitsu practitioner, even though we don't see her do that uh, a ton, um, you know, in her fights. But I, I just don't think, I mean, this would be an upset, the caliber of which we've probably never seen in the UFC. I can't think of a fight. This would be a bigger upset than Matt Serra, George St. Pierre, uh, in my estimation. I think um, it's right up there, right alongside Matt Sarah, George St. Pierre, if Megan and Anderson can. I think pull Matt Sarah was. Right a, I think Matt Sarah was a far more experienced and decorated fighter at the time that he, um, at the time that he fought GSP. You might be right. Uh, yeah, certainly more experienced. I mean, Megan Anderson, the girls she's beaten in the UFC are not really UFC caliber. They're not, except for Kat Zangano, who she like stuck her toe in her eye, and that's what caused the end of the fight a few minutes in. So, All right, but yeah, I mean, I to be fair. Like, as much as I love, um, as much as I love Matt Sarah, his biggest wins were, you know, he had wins over Eve Edwards, Ivan uh, Menjavar, Jeff Curran, and Chris, L- a split decision over Cl- Chris Lytle to earn that shot. So, still, I'll put Chris, I'll take Chris Lytle um, and Eve Edwards over anybody that Megan Anderson's beaten. I will say quickly, I think Norma Dumont, who Megan Anderson yeah. just knocked out in the first round, I think she's something special, even though she got caught in that one. I think she's going to end up doing some things in this division. Uh, I should say at 135, probably more than Megan Anderson will accomplish in her career, just based on what I've seen so far. But yeah, I agree with you. Look, uh, Amanda uh, Amanda Nunez is one of the most accomplished UFC champions of all time, period, right? She dominated or knocked out every champion in UFC featherweight history. She stopped every other champion in bantamweight history in the first round. Like yeah, she has, she's the she's the pound for pound best female fighter in the world. I'd say best fighter in the world, but I don't think we can. I used to say that. I just don't think that women's MMA is as competitive yet. And just this the sheer number of a, you know a quarter of the fighters, female fighters are on the roster compared to men. Much more, many more weight classes, and as good as as good as Nunes is. I think that there are a lot of a lot of men who are just on her 
uh, on her skill level where she stands alone in the women's divisions. I will say this. I think that her win over Chris Cyborg, two wins over Valentina Shevchenko. Yep. Um, you know, maybe her win over Misha Tate could be in the conversation. Maybe Holly Holm could be in the conversation. Jermaine Durand to me. Round, round These are Rousey. genuinely quality wins that I think are oh, yeah. on par with most other pound-for-pounders in the men's category. But I agree that the majority of the women in these divisions are not as developed as girls like yeah. Amanda Nunes. And Megan Anderson certainly falls into that regard. Like, like Amanda is explosive, heavy-handed striker with serious kicks, right? Solid wrestling, good top position grappling, good ground and pound. She's in a great place mentally. Her confidence is as high as it could possibly be. She just became a mom, by the way, along with her longtime partner, Nina Ansaroff, uh, which is pretty cool. Megan Anderson is very tall and hits extremely hard. That's about it. She has okay takedown defense, doesn't have any ground game to speak of. She beats entry-level UFC fighters, but lost to every competent grappler she's faced, not counting Kat Zangano. Um I just, I just think Amanda should. This is Amanda's fight to lose, and uh, she is going to take her down, either pound her out, I hope, or submit her. I hope that we're not getting another five round decision. Amanda went on a huge uh, finish streak there for a while, and then coming into this fight, she's got ten rounds of decisions over Felicia Spencer and Jermaine Durandamy. I feel like she could have finished both girls and I'm not going to blame her if she didn't as long as she finishes Megan Anderson because Megan has been finished by lesser fighters but yeah I'm absolutely there with you first pick is out of the way buddy and obviously that would have been my first as well it's the one I'm most confident in on the card my first pick is going to be Islam Makachev to beat Drew Dober I like Drew Dober a lot Nick I I wish that both of these guys this is another example of lazy matchmaking by the UFC. Both these guys should be fighting top 10 level competition. They should be fighting the old guard. They should not be eliminating each other as prospects. This is ridiculous that this keeps happening because it seems like the top guys of uh, lightweight refuse to fight the up and covers and it's absolute bullshit. This is maybe the positive of Joe Silva is that he would bully people into fights. Like, I don't care if you don't want to, you're fighting this guy. Dober has always been a good striker, but since he started training at elevation fight team in Colorado, He's become like super dangerous, really explosive, uh, basically a knockout artist, right? But his weaknesses has and still is against high-level grapplers. Enter Islam Makachev. He's being talked about as like the next Khabib by Khabib Nurmagomedov and the rest of their team. 15-1 overall, 7-1 in the UFC. This matchup seems tailored for him. But in his one loss, he was starched in the first round by an experienced striker, and Drew Dober is certainly that. So he has a he has a chance here. But based on how Benil Daryush was able to control and submit him in that second round, it's hard to picture Makachev not having similar success. I don't expect Makachev to necessarily finish him. And I think if he does, that would be a serious statement. But I do expect him to dominate once he can latch on to him. Once he holds on to Drew Dober, he will not let go. And I think eventually he... he he likely will finish, um, although a boring decision is not out of the question here. So uh, I believe that Makachev's going to do his thing. Yeah, Makachev's heavily favored. He's like minus 350, minus 360. I think it is most likely, but he has been caught before, and Drew Dober has heavy hands. I will not be surprised if Makachev ends up hitting the deck similarly to, to Santiago Ponzinibbio in his last fight. Um, I don't know that I quite would have had the balls to call this one this high up uh, in the picks, but I do agree with you, and I am favoring Makachev. I just, 
I weird shit happens when guys when Pete when guys are hyped like he's hyped. So really? I've got I don't know I've got a little bit of a concern. I'm um, curious who you think is the safer pick over Makachev. I hmm. Which leads into your next pick, of course. Which leads into my next pick. I'm not sure if I if I've decided my next pick yet. Um, Do you I'm want me to go, go again? Because I'm ready. <laughs> are you? Um, no, I'm kidding. Yeah, I think it comes down to between two picks for me, and I'm going to go with the hard hitting New Zealander, uh, Carlos Olberg, against the massive Kennedy Nzukchu. Uh, he's. I just think. I mean, we'll see what's happened since his last fights. It's just like Nzukchu is just still seems like an experiment very very raw and we haven't really seen him put it together or i it he just he we've seen him make the the kinds of mistakes that a hitter like carlos olberg is not going to let you get away with in my estimation i just think he's too i think he's too green i think he's a little too green for this for this contest yet i don't know who i'd match him up with instead um but I'm curious. Uh, I'm curious as to your thoughts. Yeah, I I'm actually surprised you have this one quite so high. Kennedy's very tall with a huge reach of 83 inches. He trains at Fortis MMA, one and one in the UFC. Like you said, he's super raw, but prefers to strike. He does have pretty good ground and pound. He was doing well against Paul Craig, who's like a pretty good MMA fighter, pretty good light heavyweight. I should be specific. Um, and he did pretty well against him for the majority of that fight until he got uh, stuck in a third round submission which is kind of Paul Craig's specialty. Ulberg is a kickboxer training out of city kickboxing along with Brad Riddell and Israel Adesanya. He's a very low output striker that basically waits for a counter opportunity at all times. Kind of like Adesanya fought against Romero, right? If he has an aggressive opponent, he can starch him like he did on Contender Series. If he has a timid opponent, we're in for a staring contest with the occasional kick by Ulberg. Ulberg is a novice on the ground and, and Zuchuku is at least has decent ground and pound from top position, right? I think Oberg just got like his second or third stripe on his white belt. Uh, but Nzuchuku has never gone for takedown in his short UFC career, which makes me think he doesn't practice offensive wrestling much. I'm assuming Oberg has been like focusing on defensive wrestling more than Nzuchuku has been on offense in that way. So I'm picking him on the assumption that he can uh, basically outwork the raw but talented African savage. The the thing like Uber like he that's just his nick, that's his nickname by the way that's not Stan saying something offensive. No, why why would that be offensive? Why would you? Say I don't. That? It's a, African savage. I think could be conceit could be considered a, a, a just a, a negative way to describe a fighter from Africa. Well, Nikolai, you've just ruined our entire podcast. You've done it. Uh, okay, you'll be ed- you'll be I'm editing done. this bit out. It is like when you said it, I was like, "Geez, that sounds terrible." If you don't know this, no, guy, no, I, this I, guy's do, I do. Hear it. it is it is his nickname, and I'm keeping it in, Nick, just in case somebody thinks like you do. Um, <laughs> so look, uh, Ulberg is so low output. He's so amateur on the ground from the little that I've seen that it's hard to have confidence in him at these odds. I think they're insane. I think uh, a little bit of a bet on Enzuchuku is not the worst thing because. Carlos Ulberg, uh, you know, like he does train with a great team and has some high-level training partners, but I'm concerned about his just inexperience in mixed martial arts and low, 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 low output. All right, well, you don't respect my pick, so shut up. No, no, I I agree with your pick. It would have just been uh, quite a bit lower on my list. My next pick is going to be Mario Batista to beat Trevin Jones. That was the other one one that I was going to – I was deciding between it, and I don't have as much confidence in that. 
Yeah, um, look, Trevin Jones made his UFC debut with a spectacular knockout, and naturally it got taken away by the Nevada State Athletic Commission because he had like marijuana in his system, even though he took the fight on like three days' notice. We've heard this story before, I think. Is uh, this podcast going to get taken card. down because I have it in my system? So, uh, look, Mario Batista, in my opinion, is a very legit prospect. He looked good against Sanhagen for about a couple of minutes before he got caught in an armbar. He beat Jinsu Sun pretty decisively by unanimous decision. Finished Miles Johns, who was considered a serious prospect, in the second round with a flying knee. Um, and Trevin Jones, he looked like spectacular in just the knockout part of his UFC debut, but Timor Valuev was piecing him up until that moment. I'm sure he's better than that those like those first round and a half showed, but I don't know that he's good enough to necessarily beat like an already established Mario Batista, an already established prospect. So I I am uh, with Mario on this one. Yeah, that, that was my pick too. I just Jones, you know, Jones's pop gives me a little bit of hesitation. But it was either going to be that or the last, the last one that I picked. So understandable. Um, next, and like everything gets really, I think fights generally get pretty, uh, pretty tough here after this. But I'm going to go with the flyweight Kaikar of France to defeat Rogério Bontarine. Uh, I like Bontarine. I just think that Kaikar of France is a level above, and he's only really lost to elite dudes in the last couple of years, like super elite guys. And I don't see, I don't see Bontorin, um being able to beat. Kaikara France uh, anywhere in this fight. Yeah, I really like Bontarin. He's a scrappy southpaw striker with an excellent ground game. Like he's not a good like a good striker per se. He's kind of low output, but he's got a serious ground game. Like you take him down, you will end up on your back very shortly after. Tie it up in knots. But I don't think he has the wrestling necessarily to take Kaikara France down. And Kaikar France is a busy pressure striker. I think he'll outwork Bontarin and win two of the three rounds in the judges' scorecards. But I'm hoping Bontarin comes through as the young prospect here. There's a decent chance that Kaikar France is a shot flyweight at this point in his career. In which case, I think Bontarin chews him up on the feet or on the ground. Um, so Wait, there's a chance he's there's a chance he's what a shot flyweight. He's shot just based on his last couple of uh, fights. Yeah, like what like. Like he, he, he didn't look good, man. He didn't look durable. He didn't look confident. As soon as things started kind of not going his way, he kind of fell apart in there. Against Brandon Royval. I mean, yeah, his two lo- his two recent losses. I mean, he did fight a hard hitting Tyson Nam and won that. I mean, he lost to Brandon Moreno, who took Davis and Figueredo to the edge, and that was a pretty good fight, if I remember. And yeah. Brandon Royval, they had a, I think they had a, a pretty darn exciting fight. Um, didn't he catch Royval with a with a really good shot before getting subbed? Yeah, Royval always gets caught, but Royval is not an elite fighter. He's like two or three fights into his UFC career. Like I know he got yeah, but he's a really he's up. really good on the ground. I mean, he's a he's a terrific yeah. submission guy. Yeah, I mean, I just don't I don't see the I don't see and you know who else is good on the ground? Rogério Bontarin, also really good on the ground. Also hits hard. He's scrappy. Like this was my second to like uh, my second to, to last on my pick list, and I had a real hard time with it because I like Bontorin a lot. I like what he brings. I just wonder what progression he's made over the course of the last while. Think of it this way: Kaikar France has nine losses on his record. Rogério Bontorin has two losses, and one of them was because of a cut. The other one was to freaking Ray Borg of all people. So for all we know, Bontorin is something special. Um, oh, I'm sorry. There, there wasn't a loss because of a, a, a cut. He actually won that the uh, fight because of a cut against Julian Paiva, who's a really solid fighter, in my opinion. Um, I think there's a real good chance that Kai Carfans gets upset here. I'm not sure what the odds are. 
Let me see. What are the odds? Uh, yeah, they're, they're fairly close. I guess they are about where they should be, but I'm definitely rooting for Bunterin. My next pick, Nikolai, is going Fuck to be... Sorry, <laughs> it's going to be in the Amanda Lemos versus Livia Hanata Souza matchup. Livia is kind of a scrappy. She's skilled. She's not at all athletic, though, right? She's a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, and that's where she prefers to kind of keep the fight, even though she's got some skill standing. Amanda Lemos is skilled and very athletic for the strawweight division. I like Lemos to pick up the first two rounds before getting tired in the third. She'll be stronger, faster, and she will hit way harder. My only concern is that her potentially getting tired in the third, but Susan's not really a finisher, so worst case, I figure she'll lose that third round. So you're picking Lemos? I'm picking Lemos confidently. Yep, same. Uh, I'm going to go with Song Yadong over uh, Matrix Kyler Phillips. Uh, I like both of these guys. Uh, Yadong Song or Song Yadong, he hits super freaking hard. He hasn't fought in a long time. He hasn't fought since he beat Marlon Vera, right, in a uh, a, a yes. pretty close, uh, pretty closely contested decision. Kyler Phillips has looked really good and styled on some fighters, but it's been way lower competition than Yadong uh, Song has been uh, has been fighting. I see this looking a bit like like Josh Emmett, Shane Burgos, like being super exciting, lots of great strikes, lots landing, but Yerong Song is going to hit much friggin' harder, and over the course of three rounds, I think he'll probably survive, but I just see the damage to Kyler Phillips uh, giving Song the win. Yeah, I, I I ended up siding with Song, even though I really like Kyler Phillips. I I, keep yeah, I do too. Guys that we I just like. don't know. We, the, the guys he's fought are like, meh. Yeah, and he has dominated, but you're right. They, they're they not necessarily, you know, they're, they're not guys with UFC wins, that's for sure, right? Like, they're either entering the UFC or one was 0-1 going into that Phillips fight. Yudong Song is, like, you know, I think you alluded to this fast, explosive, hits really hard. He's like the meaning of fast-twitch muscle fibers. Pretty good conditioning, but tends to slow down a bit towards the end of that uh, that third round. Solid ground and pound, good hips for takedown defense, like explosive sprawls. Aggressive on the counter in particular, I would say. And he trains with Team Alpha Male under Uriah Faber. Phillips is a slick striker with some spinning kicks, some flying knees. Uh, he has pretty good wrestling against non-wrestlers. And that's really, I think, what will decide this fight. Because I don't think Phillips is fast enough to do very well against Yudong Song standing. He also has some um, slick grappling chops with effective ground and pound from top position. That's where I think he should be in this fight if he wants to win. So far, he fought two guys that barely belong in the UFC, but he was dominant, like I said earlier. Fought a five-round fight before entering the UFC, so I think his conditioning is going to be an advantage for him here. As much as I like Phillips and I feel like he has a high upside, I'm picking Song by a slim margin here, mostly because of his speed and power advantage. I think he should be able to win the first two rounds by countering Phillips and defending takedowns, and then possibly a third round where Phillips comes on strong. But I can see Phillips' flying knee doing some damage sooner or later as Yudong sits down on a right hand or an overhand right. Plus, Yudong is cutting back down to 135 after a fight at featherweight. So I can see the weight cut affecting his performance as well, uh, specifically his gas tank. So it's a close one on paper. Shame to see a prospect get a loss, but uh, this is going to be, a, a, I think, a fun, fun fight to watch. So I'm definitely looking forward to it. My next pick, and this one was uh, definitely further down on the list for me. I've, I've got uh, several fights in between this one and, and that one. Um, my next pick is going to be in the Sean Brady-Jake Matthews matchup. 
I, you know, there's, I think, plenty of reason to like both guys. Jake Matthews, you know, started off as a little bit of like a fledgling guy, really young, really put a lot of his game together. He's a solid striker, good right hand, although I feel like he doesn't take shots well, and his chin has been slipping a bit lately. Uh, more importantly, I think he's really worked on his takedown offense. He's got explosive double legs that he does well from top position with ground and pound. Sean Brady, like, I think Sean Brady might lose the first round, right, because he kind of takes all his analytics, takes all his data in the first round, and then employs it in the second round, really puts the pressure on. And it's usually grappling pressure. He's got good fundamental standing, but the majority of his real dominance comes in when he's in top position on the ground, when he's got your back on the ground. He's not a particularly fun fighter to watch. Like, if he's winning, this is probably not going to be exciting. But he is a serious prospect, and uh, people like Paul Felder, people like Eddie Alvarez say really, really, really good things about him. Like they straight up like will tell you that he kind of dominates them in the in the in the uh, training room. So I like Sean Brady to beat Jake Matthews here. Interesting. Uh, I mean, this is a you know these the guys from City Kickboxing tend to stick together uh, on cards, and we've got at least we got like four of them. I think on this. On I this don't card. think uh, Jake Matthews. Is oh, is Jake Matthews not guy. City Kickboxing? He's the other. I think Jake Matthews is from New Zealand. Am I wrong, or that he fights out of New Zealand? Maybe you're Maybe right. Maybe I'm I wrong. He Let's was see. Aussie. I'm gonna look it up right now. Do it, bud. I'm looking it up. I'm looking it up. You're doing a wonderful job. That looks like the New Zealand flag to me. Nope, fighting out of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, affiliated with Nexus. Uh, yeah, but not a City Kickboxing guy. That I'm pretty sure of. Yeah, not a city kickboxing guy. Oh, damn similar flags. All right, so <laughs> what a maroon. Um, I'm gonna go with your with your pick here. I like Jake Matthews. I would have liked him to. I mean, it's hard. It was his last fight was against Diego Sanchez, right? So I I just, I'm gonna go with Brady here. Uh, I think you're pro. I think you're probably onto something. You're changing um, your pick because of my information. I love it when you do that, Nick. No, I didn't have a strong opinion on this one yet. This was gonna—I wasn't—I was gonna really. This was a fight I was gonna stay away from, frankly. Fair enough. Um, in which case, by the way, uh, Chom Brady being a minus two ten favorite sounds like you see some value in, in a Jake Matthews bet. Yeah, I think so. I heard that. Um, so we're getting we're getting into really interesting picks now, and there's a couple of old guard new uh, new like old guard young gun battles on this fight two of them in particular and in both cases my instinct is to go with the young guard but first i'm gonna i we've seen so little of him over the last five years i could really eat my words here um but i just i question whether dominic cruz is gonna have um the durability um to hang with a hard-hitting casey kenny um I know Kenny got more than he bargained for in his last fight, which was against Nathaniel Wood, right? Really, I mean, it was a competitive bout, but he did well. I thought he, yeah, he I did well he as it went on, but it was that first round, Jesus. Um, I mean, it was a hell of a fight. It, it, it was good. I just is as brilliant a fighter as Dominic Cruz is, as good as a strategist um, as he is. He's never had a ton of pop, although he's you know he did get a couple of finishes on his run, but just a master, a, a master tactician master of footwork uh and defense but it's not like baseball you know where, where the crafty left-hander as he gets old and his body gets creaky can um you know can sort of nip the corners with those with those breaking pitches and uh and change speeds and be and be like that deceptive i just don't 
believe in him. He, again, he may prove me wrong. This is a guy that's only lost three times professionally. Uriah Faber, TJ Dillashaw, and I scored that fight for Cruz and Cody Garbrandt. Um, is Casey Kenny as good as those guys? I mean, probably. It, it's hard. It's hard because like the like Faber's Faber was almost a different generation of fighter. Um, but I certainly believe that Casey Kenny could be a more complete fighter than Cody Garbrandt when it's all said yeah, and done. Just real quick, um, when Faber beat him, Cruz was like, I don't know, like five an hour or something. Faber yeah, had a yeah. wealth of experience. The, the, I mean, he he avenged that loss twice. Yes, I, I was there. I know. Um, but I just I just see – I think the Cejudo fight was rough, but, yeah, there was a, a weird stoppage, according to Cruz. I didn't really find, like, that much wrong with it. Um I just think Casey Kenny's too explosive, too powerful, and that although he'll probably be pissed about you know a TKO finish, I see Casey Kenny um, either like just landing more powerful shots on the way to a decision, a la Gar- uh, Garbrand, or catching Cruz and scoring like a flash, you know, a, a flash knockdown um, that ends the fight. Yeah, I, I. Ended up, like, I watched a bit of tape on this. I was wondering whether Casey Kenny could repeat what guys like Cejudo and Garbrandt did to beat Dominic Cruz. And I think one of the major things that allowed those two guys to win over Cruz is that they are extremely fast and that Garbrandt hits really hard and Cejudo timed that knee perfectly given Cruz's kind of crazy head movement. There's a predictability to Cruz's unorthodox kind of hanky-janky movement, right? There's a predictability to it that I think both of these guys took advantage of. Garbrandt, by having his teammates literally mimic Cruz exactly as he fights in training, he was ready for Cruz's repeated same old combos time and time again. And Cejudo, knowing that Cruz after that jab is going to duck right into his knee, timed it and got him perfectly. Um they both regularly hurt their opponents on the feet as well. I don't think Kenny is as fast, and I don't think he has quite the same power. Plus, Kenny slows down through the fight while Cruz seems to get stronger after taking the first round to measure his opponent's timing and all that. There's a chance that Cruz is simply past his prime, right? He's 35. He's had so many fights, so many serious injuries. But i like him to win a close second round and then take a clear-cut third round and win a competitive decision against the young prospect. This is the kind of matchmaking we need at 155 pounds, by the way, where the serious yeah. prospect gets opportunities against the old guard at the top of the division. Um, I did end up edging ever so slightly toward Cruz because just the way that Casey Kenny uh doesn't move his head i think will allow him to get hit by cruz and i think that cruz will be able to stay away from kenny's offense for the most part standing because kenny is not quite as fast as some of those guys but look if if casey kenny can pick up this win it shows that cruz is not just like right below the very elite it shows that he's you know that he's more in that bottom of the top 10 territory not a whole lot of shame in, in losing to kenny but it will be a step down for cruz for sure so i disagree with you on this one nikolai my next pick is going to be, and I think I know what you're going to pick next. My next pick is going to be in the Uros Medic versus Alan Cruz matchup. Alan Cruz is like tall, decent striker, um, not very fast. Doesn't necessarily hit all that hard, and he was knocked out in his UFC debut, I think like over a year ago, by Spike Carlisle. Whereas Uros Medic is like relatively inexperienced in MMA, but... 
he, unlike Carlos Ulberg, uh, who's fighting Kennedy and Zuchuku, he is like an aggressive kickboxer. He fucking goes after you, Nick. He wants to tear your head off out there. And he, more often than not, he does. So I like Uros Medic to just piece up Alan Cruz and uh, and make him look bad. This is a chance I'm sure that Alan Cruz could get top position and, and do some work against the kickboxer. But I'm, I'm going with the, uh, with the more explosive, more dangerous guy here. Yeah, sure. I agree with whatever you said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You know what my next pick's going to be. I'm going to let you say it for me. It's going to be Askar Askarov, the only Ruski whose name you can pronounce to beat Joseph Benavidez. For some reason, the guy that you picked twice, twice against Davidson Figueredo. Wait, I picked Askarov twice over Davidson Figueredo? No, no. You picked Benavidez twice over Figueredo. Oh, yeah. That was stupid. Well, I'm picking Askarov over Benavidez here. But I also picked Askarov uh, in his previous fights and won when you were against him. Wait, 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 um, wait, wait, wait. Well, wait, I won wait, one wait. and the other one was a draw. Because, yeah, um, let, let's, let, let's not – you keep counting that his UFC debut was a win. He shouldn't have gotten a draw. He should have gotten a loss in that fight. He got very fortunate to walk away with a draw. But go on. Anyway, listen, where's Joseph Benavidez going to go from here? He has nothing left to prove. He's been around forever. We've been watching him for, what, 14 years, something like that. Um, 15, I think. Great, great, great fighter, but the division's caught up. He's lost a bit of a step. Askarov's really good. I bet you he's going to be able to scramble with Benavidez. Um, I just don't I don't see Joseph Benavidez offering him anything that he hasn't seen um, against his against his previous opponents. Um so, yeah, we could get surprised here, but I, I just think he's above the level of competition that um, that Benavidez um, can beat these days. Also, the damage Benavidez has taken uh, in his last two fights versus Askarov not really taking much damage against Pantoja or Elliott. I mean, the Moreno fight, like, a bit, but he, he rolled with all of it. Like, he's just, I don't know, he, I think he's the real deal. I think he's a tough dude. I don't know that I'd pick him against Figueredo, but I'm going to pick him against... 2021 Joseph Benavidez, uh, tw- you know, t- the 28 year old against Benavidez, who is fighting at flyweight at 36. Um, so yeah, I love Joe Jitsu, always will. I just don't see him be- uh, beating a number, the number three ranked fighter in, in the division right now. Benavidez is just a scrappy fighter. Um, good, like good striking. I, I don't like that. He kind of leads with his head, but overall good striker, uh, effective. He can hit hard, really good wrestling. And more importantly, he's an excellent scrambler on the ground, right? Nick, believe it or not, he game planned to give up his back to who Formiga, knowing that he can then reverse and get on top position. He game plans in that way. Nick, he said it to Michael Bisping before the fight. And then from what I understand, he pulled it off. Look, he has wins over Hani Aya, Jose Formiga, Alex Perez, Henry Cejudo. What do these guys have in common? They're all really good grapplers. He excels against grapplers, right? His losses are to Sergio Pettis, Dominic Cruz twice, and Demetrius Johnson twice. Obviously, uh, Figueredo. What do all these guys have in common? They're really good strikers, right? Askarov is purely a grappler. He has a one-two. That's about it, right? Really good takedowns. Not necessarily good jiu-jitsu, but just, you know, he, he, he'll he work from top. He'll do well there. Um, plenty of heart on the guy, right? He's mentally strong. There's no doubt about that. He's a hard worker. I believe it because he's got endless gas tank. Askarov will be a bit bigger here, but Benavides is way more well-rounded and dangerous everywhere. Askarov might be able to get takedowns, but Benavides is an, is an expert at scrambling and ending up in the better position. On top of that, Joe is quite a bit better standing. 
although I've never liked the way he kind of blitzes forward head first, like I said earlier. Part of what will decide this fight is whether Benavidez is in a good mental place after the two bad losses to Figueredo. I took a quick listen to his podcast that he hosts with his wife, Megan Olivi, and he sounds happy, he sounds excited, he sounds at peace. They seem to have a really good relationship. She's clearly his support system. And I get that he's 36 years old and this is a young up-and-coming kid, but Joe has faced countless grappling-focused fighters and never lost to a single one. It's the guys who have the big striking edge and can stay on the feet that give him trouble. So I expect him to outwork Askarov to an entertaining decision win if he's significantly past his prime and doubting himself, though. Askarov will grind him out, and and so Benavidez needs to be on his P's and Q's for my prediction to come true here, but I disagree, buddy. I had no idea that Megan Olivia was married to Joseph Benavidez. Are you serious? Yeah. For real? Wow. That's yeah, like I a, did not. It's like a major known thing. They've been together for years. I they got don't, married uh, several years ago. I don't follow the personal lives of fighters. I mean, this is like such a known thing. I'm surprised you don't well, know. But not anyway. By, not by me. I'm not, I'm not on the... I'm not on like the websites, like I'm not on like footballers' wives and shit, like you are. Um, Entertainment tonight, MMA Nikolai, never miss an episode. Jesus, oh, no, I, this is like a this is like a known thing. They talk about it all the time. Like you hear you hear one of them talk, they're gonna mention the other. They're like really into each other, Nick. Jeez, Louise. Plus, like, who is Benavidez gonna marry? But like a four foot eight girl. He's like five foot four. You know what I'm saying? I don't know. Chad Mendes. It just makes sense in so many all ways. Right. Um, my next pick, Nikolai. Oh, let's see. I'm I'm trying to decide between a couple of title fights. It's tough, Nikolai. It's so tough. Do it. Elliot, Elliot versus Espinosa. Do it. That's the one. I'm going to go. I'm going to get into my breakdown, Nikolai, of the main event of main events. Jan Blackowicz, Israel, the last, the final stylebender, Adesanya. Jan has improved tremendously since entering the UFC six years ago, right? He started his UFC career at 2-4 and four and has, has gone 8-1 since. In Jan's last seven fights where he was an underdog, he is 6-1. and one. So this is a position in which he is extremely comfortable. His wins include Corey Anderson, Jacques Array, Luke Rockhold, Jaron Kennanier, Dominic Reyes. He has legendary Polish power neck in his hands and Great counters against aggressive opponents. That's how he knocked out Luke Rockhold, Corey Anderson, and Dominic Reyes, right? But he also kind of lunges forward with times with hard hand combinations. He usually kind of puts a fear into his opponents, given his power, right? His takedown defense used to be a weakness, but is really solid now. His offensive wrestling has come in handy occasionally as well, depending on the matchup. Adesanya is a high-level kickboxer. We all know the 65-5 record in kickboxing, he does not like to initiate with anything besides a jab and a leg kick. But he's a great counter striker, especially when an opponent tries to exchange with him in the pocket. When he fights other counter fighters, it can result in a tepid, slow fight, as we saw with Anderson Silva and Yal Romero. When he fights aggressive fighters, he looks brilliant with deadly counters, as we saw with Whitaker and Paulo Costa. I know that Costa wasn't overall aggressive, but in the moment he got knocked out, he was going for something. He has... Excellent footwork, which helps set up his counters. Yan will have to pressure with fakes and feints and be ready to block and counter Izzy's jab with just one or maybe two strikes to minimize Izzy's chance of countering effectively, right? He has to counter big and then get the fuck out of there. He can't hang out in that pocket. Yan will have to be ready to check or counter Izzy's leg kicks, 
which is how he knocked out Luke Rockhold and Corey Anderson, by the way. Both guys were throwing a kick, and he countered them, bombed on him, and finished them, right? Adesanya was buzzed pretty badly by Kelvin Gastelum's left cross, and Blahovich has serious power. But Yan is not nearly as fast as the former welterweight, right? He does have more size and knockout ability and all limbs, though. Izzy is naturally going to be faster as the middleweight, whose style depends on speed and timing, but Yan's timing is what allows him to score knockouts, and timing is what beats speed. The The complication to that is that Izzy has both timing and speed, right? Yan probably has the wrestling edge in this mashup, especially given his weight and strength advantage. Uh, like I said earlier, Izzy mentioned that he's going to weigh about 195 pounds. Yan is probably going to weigh about 30 pounds north of that on fight night. But Izzy has only been taken down once in his last six fights, and three of those fights were against wrestlers. Jan Blachowicz is in ab- his absolute best at age 38. He's in a great place mentally, in his best physical shape of his career. His technique as power have come up tremendous, tremendously over the course of his UFC career. But I tend to think this will be a fairly slow fight, where each guy will wait for an opportunity to counter the other. With neither guy putting much out there besides Israel with his jab and leg kick and Yan with his kind of once-per-round blitz where he kind of goes with the jab-cross-jab and switches stances in the middle of it. I think if one of these guys is aggressive, he will lose by knockout. I think it's give or take that simple. Yan was extremely patient with Tiago Santos for more than two rounds because Tiago is dangerous on the counter, right? The moment he lost his patience and blitzed forward, he was countered and knocked out with a left hook. And the left hook is how Izzy knocked out uh, Paula Costa and uh, Robert Whitaker, right? Those guys were lunging in with offense. Izzy leaned back and threw a few hooks, and that left hook caught both of those guys. I have a feeling Izzy has a plan for that blitz, and like Santos, he has a speeded advantage over Yan. I'm picking Israel Adesanya to beat Yan Blahovic because he is more technical and faster. I think a counter hook or a leg kick based decision is likely, but Yan might be one of Israel's hardest fights if he is smart and selective with his trigger finger. For the record, I'll be rooting for Yan, who accomplished his career-long dream as an athlete at age 37, and this will be a major, major notch on his belt and onto his legacy. So I'll be rooting for Yan because I think this would be an incredible accomplishment, but I'm going to give the slight edge to Israel Adesanya. And by the way, there are some betting opportunities on this fight, just real quick. Uh, Adesanya in a parlay, I think, is a good idea. And then Yan by KO, plus 422 odds, Definitely sign me up for that. So if you put like a hundred bucks on Adesanya in a parlay with somebody else, put like put like thirty of thirty to fifty bucks on Yan by KO. That'll hedge your bet, and then you'll be kind of safe either way. This is a tough one, and I'm gonna pick with my heart here mostly, but a little bit of my brain. I more or less agree with things you said, but I'm gonna go with I'm gonna pick I'm gonna disagree with you and go with Jan Blahovich. I do think that Blahovich has a pretty darn good chin. Like, Santos is gigantic, um, and I think he's got more one-shot power than Adesanya does. Yeah. Um, he's certainly, you know, certainly Adesanya's faster, but I just... I don't know about that, like by the way. Well, I, th- I think uh, 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 Santos might be faster than Adesanya, especially early, but go really? on, sorry. Yeah, uh, well, yeah he's extremely fast. Is, he's the like way that he, he fought Dominic Reyes... I'm not saying he's... I'm not saying he's not fast. I just... Think Adesanya. I mean, I I think Adesanya's striking seems to be like a blur uh, yeah. to me. But I it, we're gonna we're gonna learn a lot the first time Adesanya lands because Blahovich is so big, 
And I don't, I don't think this is going to be like a Forrest Griffin, Anderson Silva situation where Blahovich is just going to like, you know, big guy runs, runs into something from the Ninja striker. The way that he fought Dominic Reyes was so smart. And Blahovich is very good at, at wrangling guys. Um, And while Adesanya is very, is very sharp and has great situational awareness, he's found himself up against the cage uh, and it happened against Anderson Silva in not particularly opportune situations. And he's been able to get out of them. But, you know, I think, I just think Blahovich is so big. And if he, and all he, I, I guess I going into this fight, I believe all he has to do is land, is land a shot. And I have a feeling that's going to happen over the course of five rounds. That he all he really has to do is tag Adesanya with one big shot, and this and the weight class difference, the size difference, um, and Blahovich hits hard for light heavyweight, and we've seen yeah. Adesanya buzzed a couple of times um, by guys that are much smaller, maybe faster, certainly guys with power, but I just think I think Jan's a di- is a different beast. He's understated. He's not a great promo. Um, but his his fundamentals are, are really great, and I just I think he's I think he's eventually going to land a shot, and I I I think that that'll that that'll be enough to to put Adesanya um, out. I just I see a knockout for Blahovich. That would be so fucking exciting, Nick, because I have a feeling that until that moment, it will be super boring. It's I think you're probably right, but I I just think that. Adesanya is biting off a lot by jumping up this way. And the difference between yeah. 185 and 205 and the size of the guys that you fight. And Volhovich is not a small light heavyweight. He's yeah. a, And I know Adesanya is taller, but he's – this guy's back. I mean he's, he's, he's a monstrous dude. And he's just he, – he's got really good precision and, to your point, timing on his punches. He's not as fast as Gastelum. But Vittori hit Adesanya, you know um, – hit him quite a bit um there's other guys that that haven't because they they lunged in or they fought foolishly um like brunson and when you when you do charge out you do end up looking like forrest griffin against anderson silva but i think i think this could end up playing out a little bit more like chris weidman against anderson silva we'll see i wouldn't i just know bohovich hits fucking hard (laughs) and i don't think he's not gonna land at all he's such a likable guy nick like you see an interview with him, and I, I know that he's not gonna like cut a promo, but you I like can't help but like the guy. By the way, he's a new father. He's like you know, he's all these wonderful things are happening to this guy at age thirty eight now. Next, so really, really am rooting for him to to do well here. I think that Adesanya's uh, ego can be put in check a little bit, so it wouldn't be the worst thing. The only bad thing about a win by Jan Blachowicz is that John Jones seems to think that like anytime somebody talks trash to them and then loses a fight, that somehow it's a win for him. And so like John Jones would be like gleefully happy if Jan Blackowitz can knock out Adesanya. Yeah, but you know what? Eventually he's gonna get into a cage with Francis Ngannou. <laughs> and that's gonna be the scariest potentially I the scariest so. twenty five minutes of his life. But that's another I'll, I'll put it to you this story. way. Whichever of these two guys wins this fight, if if uh Nganu ends up beating Stipe Miocic by a clean early knockout. I'm willing to bet a hundred dollars right now that John Jones is going to make an excuse for not going up to heavyweight. That he's going to end up coming back down to 205. I'm willing to bet a hundred. I mean, have you seen him lately? Though he weighs like 250 pounds. He looks like one of his brothers. 
Yeah, I mean, I I hear you. Like he's like he's already kind of given himself a little bit of a hedge by saying like, you know, I hope I get to compete for the UFC one day. I hope it works out. Like, like he's gonna basically say they're not offering him enough money if if Ngannou can pull off a quick knockout. Which I realize he's fighting fucking Stipe Miocic. It's not that simple. But yeah, who's already happen. who's already beaten him? But I rewatched exactly. that fight recently and. Like we'll see, we'll see what happens. That's a very fun fight to rewatch, by the way. That, that yeah, first round. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Are you kidding? That, that fight is insanity. I, I look forward to it's rewatching like, it leading up to that main event. Yeah, it's like Stepe looks like Indiana Jones, like, like dodging, <laughs> running from just the boulder. dodging these monstrous attacks <laughs> while making faces. Like Jesus, what am I supposed to do about this? <laughs> I believe it. But I forgot the kind of leather that Ngannou was throwing in that first round. I have no idea how Stipe survived. Yeah, Uh, well, that's the thing is that Ngannou was so not himself in that fight. He always waits for the counter. And in that fight, he just went for it. And it's not going to work the same way against Stipe, on paper at least, as it's going to work against somebody like Rosenstrike. So, So, yeah. Well, uh, okay, it, that's going to be a fun one. I'm going to pick the other title fight next. So I'm going to go. I think there's we're going to have a new champion. I'm going to pick Aljamain Sterling uh, to defeat Peter Yan. And this just comes from, you know, I've watched a bunch of Yan, but the athleticism, I know these are trite terms, the athleticism, the explosiveness of Sterling, and how he was able to get on Sanhagen like that. And and Sanhagen's a better grappler, I think, than than uh, Peter Yan is, and possibly more athletic. Also, I I think Peter Yan's going to be in a lot of trouble if Aljamain Sterling gets his back. And yeah. I have, and I just I'm having a lot of trouble imagining Yan avoiding that. And Yan's a really really good striker, and he's got incredible power, but he's not like. He's not like fast twitch uh, Marlon Moraes of two years ago in the first round, where you know Moraes has this blinding speed and was just destroying everybody. Like Jan's a bit like you know he he he's not a uh, I mean he can knock people down with one punch, but he's not he's not a guy that finishes people in the first thirty seconds of fights. And I just see Aljamain Sterling getting to ad- advantageous positions and potentially getting a choke. Um, you know, maybe fast. I wouldn't be surprised if Aljamain Sterling ends this ends this fight in the first three minutes. If he doesn't, and and like, if he can't get position on Jan, he's in. I think he's probably in in trouble in a in a boxing match over you know over the course of five rounds. But I think that the the biggest advantage in the fight is is Aljamain Sterling's uh, top notch wrestling and jujitsu. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think both guys have this like death knell advantage in different areas. Yan has extreme power and he's very confident in his power. And with a record of 15 and one now, he knows that once he hits opponents, they don't want it anymore. Like they change their facial expression. Their confidence goes once he hits them once or twice, right? Doesn't have to finish right there, but they're clearly in a different mental space. The moment he does land, like he's got that kind of power. Um, he kind of starts slow, generally uses the first round to calibrate his opponent's timing. If you're going to do well against Peter Yan, it's going to be in the first round, which to your point, right? If, if the NCAA division three wrestling wrestler and BJJ black belt can get that top position in the first round, he very well could submit Peter Yan. That's entirely possible. Um, 
but he, he like Pian is like a big, strong guy, right? He's a pressure counterfighter. He doesn't really take chances and just throw a bunch of shit at you and and let you dive under his legs for a takedown. He's great at combining his punches with kicks and knees and combos, switches stances all the time, gets stronger as the fight goes deeper, while his opponents are taking more and more damage and mentally and physically deteriorating. Deteriorating, right? His one loss is when he was five and zero in a five round title fight against an eleven and zero opponent. His opponent looked tired and heavily damaged at the end of that five rounds, Nick, and he looked like he didn't take a scratch. And like honestly, the decision could have gone Jan's way. He avenged that loss one fight later. He has a high knockout rate, eight knockdowns in his seven UFC fights, including three knockouts, although it might be actually, I don't know if that factors into the Jose Aldo fight. He switched camps from Taiga Muay Thai to American Top Team leading up to this fight, and I think it's specifically because of the super high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu that Aljamain Sterling brings to the table. I think he did it specifically for this opponent. Both are great camps, but ATT has the high-level Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts and wrestlers, which brings me to Aljamain Sterling, right? Excellent wrestler extremely good grappler. Like people talk about Tiago Moises being a high level black belt. I think Sterling is a high level black belt. And I think Tiago Moises is not even close. He has acquired his own style of striking that involves plenty of kind of unorthodox movement. He's fairly comfortable in the pocket against pressure fighters, but prefers to keep the fight at kicking range to stay out of danger. His defense and offense standing up is solid, even though he doesn't have much power in his hands. His expertise is on the ground, though, as he has submission wins over the kinds of prospects and contenders that don't get finished, let alone submitted, right? He tapped top contender Corey Sanhagen in under 90 seconds, submitted Cody Stamen with a modified knee bar a couple of years ago. Of the three losses on his record, two were split decision losses to top contenders, when he was an up-and-comer. And then one was that not knockout loss to Marlon Barais that we mentioned. He recently had wrist surgery, and after not having grip strength in one hand for a couple of years, he attributes the quick Sanhagen win to getting his strict grip strength back, right? Trains under Sarah and Longo. We all know this. So the quality of opposition between these two guys, right? Sterling basically built his experience and skill set in the fire of the UFC bantamweight division. With while Yan got his experience on the almost as good Russian MMA scene, Sterling is on a five-fight winning streak, and his five opponents' combined records were 84-7, and seven, with names like Brett Johns, Cody Stamen, Jimmy Rivera, Pedro Munoz, Corey Sanhagen, all top 15 fighters at the time he fought them, right? None of these five fights were particularly competitive, and Sterling either dominated or finished all five. Yan has three top 15 opponents on his resume with John Dotson, Jimmy Rivera, and Jose Aldo. So Sterling gets the edge in quality of opposition in my experience, in my opinion. Five-round experience, that has to go to Yan. He's had three fights that, that have gone into the fifth round, whereas Sterling has only had one, and that was like his third pro MMA fight back in 2011. Um, uh, maybe I'm sorry, his fifth pro MMA fight back in 2011. The striking, you got to go with Yan here. He lands more strikes per minute, hits much harder than does Sterling. He has eight UFC knockdowns, and Sterling has zero. Yan also has a better chin than Sterling, right? But Sterling has an unorthodox style that makes him hard to hit, which is part of why he takes less strikes per minute than does Yan. The edge to Yan when it comes to striking, I think, is pretty clear. Wrestling, both men have success with takedowns, but Sterling is a two-time Division Three All-American. Yan gets takedowns to help establish dominance and to kind of mentally break his opponents. Sterling gets takedowns to employ his high-level submission game. Yan's one loss was because he got out-wrestled in three of the five rounds. Sterling gets the slight edge in wrestling, in my opinion. 
The grappling in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is where Sterling shines. That's his biggest advantage. Yan has one submission win in his third pro MMA bout. Sterling has eight submission wins, including over top 10 competition. If Sterling gets top position early, there's a good chance he finishes Yan, like you said. The mental strength, this is a weakness of Sterling's and a serious strength for Yan. Sterling can overthink a matchup. He can focus a bit too much on the negative. Yan doesn't show a hint of mental weakness in any interviews that I've ever heard. Both guys sound confident, but with Yan, you get the impression that it's genuine. And with Sterling, it sometimes sounds like his confidence is kind of insecurity-based, right? The smaller cage tends to help the pressure fighter, the wrestler, or the man with more power, right? Yan is the pressure fighter, and he has more power. Sterling has the wrestling edge. So I would say like a little bit more toward Yan in that way. I think it's unlikely that Stern can afford to bob and weave his head in the pocket, landing counters against Yan like he did against Pedro Munoz, who was the other kind of high-pressure fighter he fought. Yan is too active, too accurate, and too powerful for that. Even though Sterling can finish if he gets an early takedown, and Yan is a slow starter, I'm picking Piotr Yan to beat Aljamain Sterling over the course of a grueling three to four rounds as Sterling slowly loses confidence and takes damage. His grit, output, his pressure, his power, his mental edge should be enough to get the win here. But there's a major risk of a submission loss if a Sterling can get him down early. So I realize there's risk here, but I am disagreeing with you on this pick. Yeah. Buddy. Oh, I mean, I I don't disagree with anything you say. It's it's super tough. It's just a it's a bet. Like I think Jan's awesome. I just yeah. Like we're gonna yeah we're gonna know a lot in the first three minutes of the fight. Yeah, um, I think you're right about that. I believe I have the next pick. So so we're in this weird situation where. Like, we have an odd number of fights. I'm sure, like, six of these fights will end up not coming through, unfortunately. By the way, yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if well, one of the title fights Well, let's make this the last pick and then do a tiebreaker, or you just want to not pick the last fight? Well, I guess what we can do is let's see if we disagree on either of these, and then maybe we'll maybe we'll just, like, like let, let either of us get that point if we disagree on either of the next two fights. What do you think? Um, hang on. So we've got how many? We currently we got, have um, four disagrees. Elliot. Espinoza and well I'm thinking like in these next last two fights if we disagree on one of them then like basically whoever is right gets that point and whoever is wrong does not what do you think we don't have to let's pick them first and then make the decision all right so I'm gonna take I'm gonna take Tim Elliott to beat Jordan Espinoza and we I agree, we agree on that jerk we do I, I realize Tim Elliott's not like in an incredible place overall, right? I think Espinosa's overrated, and I like that Elliot is training under James Krause. I think Elliot should be able to get top position and grind this one out. What worries me is that Espinosa has 90% takedown defense, but Elliot is a better wrestler than most of Jordan's opponents anyway. As long as he doesn't stand at the end of Espinosa's punches or gas out early, I think Elliot should have this one. Yeah, I look at this as a fight between two guys who are really good at snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, I hear that. Agreed. <laughs> I'm not, you know, it's if there's a, it could, and it'll probably it won't be boring. I guess I was gonna say it'll be my pee break fight, but I don't, I don't think it's, it's. Uh, I guess I don't think it's likely to be boring. Um, yeah, it shouldn't be. So that takes us to the very, very last fight, and I mean, this is a tough one because Santos had that brutal. Uh, defeat. Speaking of snatching defeat from the jaws yeah. of victory um, against Glover, we knew Glover was going to be tough, and he's done that before. Um, following, you know, on his, in his comeback fight, so we 
we really don't know the state of his leg. I don't. I guess it's it's okay that he's coming back this quickly. Um, and you've got you know Rakic, who's only lost in the UFC, is this, is a really uh, competitive split decision to Vulcan Ozdemir, um, which he probably could have won. I've got to go back and I didn't go back and watch it again, but I remember it being very close. Um, like a true a true worthy split decision. Yep. I mean, this one's super super hard to pick but based on the fact that we know uh we know reka can 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 take a shot and also can fight smart and and fairly conservatively as he did against anthony smith um and tiago santos you know we still don't quite know where he is off of that injury off of the the knee surgery or knee surgeries um and getting uh you know getting beat beat up just how many months ago was that not that long. It was uh, three or four months, I think. Wait a minute. Oh no, I'm looking at the wrong thing. <laughs> I was like, that can't. This was be. in November, November seventh. Yeah, so we're talking about three four months. months. Four months four ago. Months. Um, this is a reason why this one's last. I th- yeah. think. I think I'm going to go with Raykick just based on their based on their current trajectories, and I want to I want to know. I think Raykick will be able to survive any early onslaught. Um, I think he's got the poise to do that. I think he could, you know, maybe keep him at the, keep Santos at the end of his jab. I think Raykick should have the reach advantage, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he does. Yeah, 78, 78 reach advantage against seventy six, like so a two inch reach advantage. advantage. I, I think he should be able to survive. I don't think he's going to get caught with his chin up uh, or anything like that. So I just – after the first, I don't know if how this version of Diego Santos does. I need to, I need to see more before I'm comfortable picking him. And uh, I think I just I think Rakic's KG is strategic and uh, gonna, he's going to make it very tough um, for, you know, for Santos to get kind of, you know, get, get – get wide open. I don't think Rakic's going to hang in the pocket. I think he's going to work from range and work up against the cage um, and not get caught between those two places. So obviously Santos will be faster. He has heavier hands. Rakic will be the bigger, stronger man on paper. At least Santos's calf kicks will be a real issue for Rakic who for Rakic who lost a calf kick based decision to Vulcan Ozdemir and his stance makes calf kicks really easy to land. Plus, Raykick should be fairly easy to counter for Santos since Raykick keeps his chin up and is susceptible to the left hook, which is coincidentally Santos' knockout punch. But Santos is really weak off his back. Glover Teixeira had little trouble taking him down in his last fight, so it's hard to trust in Tiago's takedown defense after the double knee surgery. Plus, Santos doesn't have a great chin when hit cleanly, and Raykick is a powerful guy, especially with a spinning back fist and head kick. I need to see Santos in elite form before I can see him as a top light heavyweight again. If That's what I said. Are, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm there mm-hmm. with you. If, if his knees are not back to form, if his win over Blahovich was more because Blahovich made a huge mistake than Santos doing something brilliant, if his competitive decision with John Jones was, was more due to a style matchup and Jones being past his prime than Santos being a high-level fighter, then maybe Santos is still a journeyman that we kind of knew him to be at middleweight, right? But if he shows up in his best form, he can score a violent knockout. Ray Kick was hurt early on by Devin Clark with a left hook. 
And Devin is also kind of a fast switch, smaller guy. And in my opinion, he's not as good as Santos, right? But based on Santos's last performance, I'm not betting on it. So I'm picking Alexander Rakic to beat Tiago Santos, probably by decision. And it could possibly be a boring one if Santos is particularly careful following his loss. Like, basically, imagine the Tiago Santos that fought Jan Blahovic for the first 10 minutes facing off with the Alexander Rakic that fought Anthony Smith. We might just have a staring contest here, but if at least one guy is aggressive, this will be a fun fight, however long it lasts. Um, I'm I'm there with you on on the on the pick. I'm not confident in it. This is literally the last. Well, that's pick why it's our last. That's why it's our last pick. <laughs> yeah. So so what what I say is that this fight, um, I guess it shouldn't count because it's an odd number, and and we'll just count the rest of the fight since this is the one that we're least uh, kind of sure about. But at least we broke it down for our. Dozens and dozens of listeners, Nick, and that's got to come for some. No, I'd like the option to, if I get this one correct, insert it over one of my losses. What the fuck is that? That's bullshit. It's ridiculosity. All right, that's fine. Ridiculosity, Nikolai. All right, it's past my bedtime, jerk. <laughs> I feel like 8.30 p.m. is past your bedtime. It's like 11.17, Nick. We are way past. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for this card. Me too, man. I really am. I, I, really I hope we don't lose any of the hope. big fights. Nick, I think it's so likely that we do just based on the last couple of cards where we had 15 fights scheduled, Nick, and we ended up with like nine last week. Six yeah, fights basically, for our dozens and dozens of listeners, what happens is around Thursday, Stan and I start texting each other back and forth based on who sees that a fight fell off first. It's like, yeah, blah, blah, blah yeah, is gone. Basically. And I start getting pinged by DraftKings because you have to, every time, like, I keep losing money because it the fights fall off. Like, I didn't even know that Hill Yoder fell off until, like, they skipped it in the card. Um, Same here, actually. I only found out when I first started watching, and uh, it was mentioned uh, on the broadcast by John Anik. Yeah, that that one hurt. I was looking forward to seeing Angie back in action. But I think they're going to reschedule it to the next couple of weeks. It is it is kind of a weird situation. But, uh, there look, there are some betting opportunities on this card. I'm just quickly going to run by a couple of suggestions. If you put Adesanya in a parlay, I think I already said this earlier, um, with another kind of uh, parlay fighter that I'm going to mention, Yan by knockout plus 422. That's a great goddamn deal because if he's going to win, it's probably going to be my knockout. Um, you can also bet Peter Yan by knockout plus 333. I feel like if he's going to win, it's probably going to be late in the fight. There's a very good chance it's going to be a decision too, but it's probably going to be late in the fight and it's probably going to be by TKO. And Sterling... By submission, plus 375. I would say place a little bit of a wager on both of those options. Like, it's it's really not a bad situation. If you put, let's say, 30 or 40 bucks on each side, you're likely to come out with something there, in my opinion. And then we have uh, the Islam Makachev Drew Dober fight. Put Makachev in a parlay and then put some money down on Dober by KO, plus 600 odds by Dober by KO. That's insane. Uh, that'll be a great hedge for a parlay involving Makachev. Rockich in a parlay. Uh, and then Santos by knockout plus 205 as a hedge. I think that would be a pretty good idea. And then outside of that, I think I think that's most of it. Oh, you know what? A straight bet on Joe Benavidez plus 110 or Joe Benavidez by decision plus 275. Like Joe doesn't really finish fights and Askarov's a real tough guy. Um, maybe you can, you know, if you believe in Askarov, maybe you can throw Askarov in a parlay somewhere so you can kind of have uh, the best of both worlds. Um, I think that the Kaikara France Ruggiero Bontarin fight is extremely likely to go to decision. 
unless Bontarin gets a submission or something. Um, and minus 180 odds for that fight to go to decision, that's something to consider. And I think that will do it for the bets on this card. Quickly, I do want to mention last week, I made some bet suggestions. And I made some good suggestions. I suggested a bet on... Uh, uh, I suggested putting on Kaliev in a parlay or two. I suggested uh, putting a bet down on Gun by decision. I also suggested putting a bet down on Rosa Strike by KO, just like a little bit of a bet. Um, that one wouldn't have worked out, but that gun decision one definitely would have. I suggested, I believe, a bet on uh, uh, Ronnie Lawrence, which certainly worked out. So, uh, you know, just uh, listen to the advice is all I'm saying. Or you, can, or you can listen to my picks and go straight back. God damn it. All right, Stanislav. I will see you next week. Looking forward to it, bud. Have a great night.